a married couple that prays together stays together. A family that prays together stays together. A church that prays together stays together. What is it about prayer that has such sticking, staying power? Jeff Chang, when talking about the prayer meetings at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was Charles Spurgeon's church, he says this, the accounts of the prayer meetings at the tabernacle generally gave a sense of the people walking away edified and encouraged by the ordinary work of praying and depending on their Lord. But perhaps that was the secret to Spurgeon's prayer meeting. These gatherings were crucial reminders to hold fast to Christ. Amid all their success and growth and activity, it would be too easy for a church to begin letting go of Christ's hand and trusting in their efforts and methods. The weekly prayer meeting helped ensure that activism and success never displaced their love for and dependence upon Christ. Friends, the reason that prayer keeps couples and families and churches together is mutual dependence upon Christ. And if we are to, you and I are to persevere to the end, we need Christ. We need prayer. Friends, we're coming off of a passage that emphasizes the judgment that God will bring upon those who oppress. And what we found is that this oppression is directed toward God's people in particular. But when we see in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, this exhortation to endure suffering in this life and be patient as you bear it up, James doesn't just end that section with this pull-up-your-bootstraps mentality, but he rather is basing their patient endurance in hope of the Lord's coming. He will make right what is wrong. Jesus will bring justice upon the unrighteous. And this is meant to bring the Christians that he's writing to such hope in the midst of suffering. That they are willing to see God's purpose through it. That God is compassionate. Beloved, it teaches us that God is truly concerned with us. And our holiness. And, our des and he desires deeply that we depend upon him. Trusting in him no matter what the circumstance is. And that God is truly merciful to his people. That God is predisposed to being kind and generous in his application of mercy in your life. Beloved, I just want to reiterate what James has already mentioned, what he's already talked about through this passage. That we must fix our hearts on the future hope and deliverance of sin in this life and let that hope energize our current faith. And that is where James picks up here in verse 13. So that we 
having our lives inclined toward humble prayer and our suffering and joy-filled praise, we are commanded to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may not wander from the truth all while we pursue those who do. Please turn on your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, the pew Bibles, that's on page 588. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Just consider that a gift from our church to you. We're going to read chapter 5, verse 13 through 20, and then we will begin working our way through it. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, throughout the duration of our time together, I want to point out to you two things. And I'm going to separate this passage in two ways. So I have two points, or two, yeah, two points, not one point. First, we ought to be praying in faith, verse 13 through 18. It lays out how we are to be praying in faith, or the prayer of the righteous. So praying in faith is the first point. The second point is pursuing in love. Pursuing in love. That's verse 19 and 20. So praying in faith, we read in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Or is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James starts this section in verse 13 with someone, something he's talked at length about throughout the entire book, and that's suffering. But he adds cheerfulness as well, which really spans the length of the Christian experience. We can think of passages like Romans 12, verse 12, verse 15, chapter 12, verse 15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And how Paul gives this same idea in his writings. He really gives two extremes and lays out the proper responses to each of them. I'd like us to notice two things about this passage, and that's first, is that it's both about, both of these responses are pointed to God. Notice that the text says, let him pray, let him sing praise. Really what we see is that whatever the circumstance is in our lives, the Lord invites us to bring these joys and trials to him in prayer. In praise, directing those responses to God. 
Friends, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, whether you're experiencing great difficulty or you're experiencing great joy or you're somewhere in between, we are always to respond first by asking God for wisdom to walk through our suffering or praising God for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Friends, this means that before you tell others about your suffering and before you tell others about something joyful that the Lord brings into your life, tell God first. Tell God first. Verse 13 is emphasizing this personal nature of a Christian experience. There is something refreshing and relieving when we come to God in prayer and lay our sorrows and our joys upon him. What do we know from Philippians? Chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, he says, Do not be anxious. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, our Heavenly Father loves hearing His children come to Him in prayer. Brothers and sisters, do you make time for the discipline of personal prayer? You might be at a time in life where it's extremely hard to actually sit still and have undistracted prayer. You might be busy with your, your job, your children, your school. And beloved, don't feel unnecessary guilt because of that. We should pray that the Lord would help us have better focus throughout the day to direct our prayers and praise to him first. He desires it and loves when his children come to him in prayer. Friends, the second thing that we notice about this passage is that Though our Christian life is personal, it's never private. Though our Christian life is personal, it's never private. If you take a a glance at this passage with me, you'll see a bottleneck nature to it. You'll see how it starts small and then it kind of expands. It might start personal, but it grows quickly to become communal. Verse 13 is talking about one person. You see, it says, let him pray. Let him sing praise. Verse 14 adds in the elders. And then verse, 13, uh, verse 16 adds in the whole church. Friends, though your Christian life might start in private, it can never stay private. It can never stay private. In our selfish pride, we will often want everyone to think that we're doing great and that there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with us. We're we're okay. Don't worry about us. While we are sinfully decaying on the inside. The prideful privacy, this prideful privacy cannot be further from the heart of Christ. John Wesley said that there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. He says we part company with the mind of God if we try to be Christ-like on our own. Beloved, there is hardly anything deadlier to your godliness 
than privacy. There is hardly anything deadlier to your godliness than privacy. This is exactly what James is showing us here, that though our Christian walk might start privately, it cannot stay private. Which leads us then to verse 14. Verse 14 through 16 reads this way, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Verse 14 breaks in this way. First, we see a problem. Someone's sick. Okay, someone is sick. Now, the word here for sick just literally means to be weak. Uh, the word is used often in reference to a type of sickness or just a sickness that can cause you to be weak, not be able to get up. It's causing a person to be bedridden. Uh, the text doesn't give us a clue into knowing what the sickness is, uh, and therefore it's not necessary for us to know. Then what we see are three responses. Three responses. The sick person calls for the elders of the church, they pray over him, and they anoint him with oil. Then we see this final power of appeal, and that is at the end of the sentence. It says, they did this in the name of the Lord. Elders were those spiritual leaders who were recognized for their, their, their maturity in the faith. So it's natural that they would be called on to pray for healing. They should be able to discern the will of the Lord through the study of the Bible and to pray with faith that recognizes that God has the gift of healing and can give it. This passage doesn't suggest that elders are like priests. It's not what this passage is saying. Though elders should stand out and set other believers an example in their godliness and in their teaching, they don't have any mysterious healing priestly power. There's nothing that elders have like that. In fact, if you move from verse 14 to 16, the emphasis moves from only the elders praying for those who are sick to the entire church praying for one another. So this shift from elders to believers in general reminds us that the power to heal is invested in prayer, not in the elder. It's not primarily about a person praying about the person praying, but upon whether God chooses to heal or not, which is, why we, which is why they ask in the name of the Lord. Now, friends, what's going on with this oil? I mean, is this olive oil? Is this motor oil? Is this SAE 30 that they're pulling on this? No, that's, so there's three ways that this has typically been looked at. Okay, the first one is medicinal, sacramental, and symbolic. So oil was widely used in the ancient world, both as skin conditioner and as medicine. Uh, you can actually see an example of this in Luke 10.34. You can go back and look at that on your own time. It's not likely that this is it's what's happening in this passage. So it was used medicinally, but it's more than likely not, so, not what's happening here. The second use is sacramental. The Roman church gave to the priest the exclusive right 
to perform this ceremony and, and developed what's called the, the uh, sacrament of extreme unction in A.D. 852. It would seem that the Catholic understanding, if we read this passage and we compare it to the rest of Scripture, is flawed. The third use of it is symbolic. So medicinal, sacramental, and symbolic. The anointing frequently symbolizes the, the consecration of persons or things for God's service and use in the Old Testament. You can see an example of this in Exodus chapter 28, verse 41. The same usage is continued and expanded in the New Testament, where anointing is often a metaphor for consecration to God's service. We actually just went through this in Mark with Mary anointing Christ. So you can look at this in Luke 4, uh, 4, 18, Acts 4.27, Acts 10.38, and there's many other passages. So if James has this background in mind, then he would be recommending that the elders anoint the sick person in order to show how that person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. While anointing with oil, because its significance is, is just unclear, it attracts a lot of attention in this passage. Friends, I want to point out that it is clearly subordinate to James's main point, and that's prayer. The oil is not the point. Prayer is. So verse 15 reads this way. After they've done all this, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what we have here is the elders have actually done what they're commanded to do. They've been called. They've anointed this person with oil. They've prayed in the name of the Lord. But then we see what seems to be this assurance that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This passage seems to ensure something that we know we can't ensure. It doesn't just say it will, will save the one who is sick, but the Lord will raise him up. It all comes down to the question, friends, and we have to, this is, this is really what it comes down to. It's, it's examining what is the prayer of faith. What is it? What is the prayer of faith? Is it some kind of mystical thing that these, that these elders are doing? Well, well, let's look at it together. James talks about prayer primarily in three places in the entire book. In James, he talks about prayer in three places. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And in this passage. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, the readers are urged to ask God for the wisdom that they need, more than likely in reference to suffering and trials. James says that this prayer should be in faith, without doubt. The Old Testament clearly indicates that double-minded, double-hearted people are those who do not really trust God. They are trying to both trust in the world and their own resources and pray to God. This disloyalty and duplicity in prayer is not a prayer of faith. It is trust in the world with God as the insurance policy. It will receive nothing. 
Beloved, do you pray treating God like an insurance policy rather than the very one you need in every moment of every day? Friends, this isn't a prayer of faith. It's it's ultimately a prayer that is set to treat God like he's an afterthought. Beloved, if we treat God like that, if we treat God like he's our add-on, he's the cherry on top of our Sunday, our prayers will not be prayers of faith. They will not be filled with faith. They'll be filled with doubt. And we'll be double-minded in our pursuit of God. Remember, faith is a gift from God. And God can withhold it if he so chooses. John Onwichekwa refers to prayer in this way. It's a little, little bitty book. You can find it probably out on the shelf or we have it somewhere. It's a little orange book called Prayer. He says prayer is oxygen for the Christian. It sustains us. So it follows that prayer must be a source of life for any community of Christians. It is to the church what it is to individuals breathing. He goes on to say, yet many of our gatherings could be likened to people coming together merely to hold their collective breath. This would explain why people seem to have so little energy for actually living out the Christian life. Beloved, if our energy for Christ is connected to our prayer to God, then we should be constant in prayer and not be double-minded, expecting God to only show up when we want him to or when we need him. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, He tells the Christians this. He says, you desire but do not have. So you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. The people addressed here are praying that God will fulfill their selfish desires. They want to get on in the world and they want God to help them. These people are rightly called to repent because they're double-minded. You can read that in chapter 4, verse 8. Beloved, here are two dangers of how we treat God in prayer. Two dangers. We can either treat God like he's the passenger in our car, our insurance policy that if we get in a wreck, we need the insurance. We need the insurance to be able to pull that dent out and give us a new car. Or we can treat God like a genie, thinking that he will help us get our desires. Friends, what do you personally desire? It might be a many number of things. It might be moving up in your job. It might be something as simple as getting a new car. Do you ask God for it more than what he wants for you? I'm not saying that every personal desire is a sinful desire. 
But if we find ourselves asking more for what we want than for what God wants for us, then we should probably examine whether or not our prayers are based on faith. We can even desire healing and even convince ourselves that if we had enough faith, that we'd be healed. Brothers and sisters, this passage isn't saying that if you have enough faith, that you'll be able to heal. Or that people will be able to heal you. Prosperity gospel preachers and writers make a great deal of this call for faith. Insisting that a believer simply needs to have enough faith in order to receive healing from the Lord. Friends, the devastating result of this thinking is that believers who do not get healing, when they pray for healing, now deal with a twofold burden. Added to their remaining physical challenge is the assumption that they lack sufficient faith to be a Christian. How burdensome is that? This way of looking at faith and its results is overwhelmingly unbiblical. The Bible never teaches that the measure of your faith is what will heal other people or yourself. We cannot use God for our own gain. We cannot use God for our own gain. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can go to our podcast. You can even look at the workshop that Sean DeMars did when he was here. He talked about the prosperity gospel. That would be a very helpful resource for you to go back and listen to that. So seeing what prayer of faith isn't, we really need to understand what the prayer of faith is. So here I would like to read verse 17 and 18 together. Verse 17 and 18 read this way. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The story of Elijah is found in 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 17 and 18. And I'm not going to go read it now, but you're welcome to do that. But James is using this story to describe what the prayer of faith is. Interesting point that James doesn't specify that Elijah was, was some important, popular, and powerfully used person in the history of the Jews, which he was. Uh, Jews almost looked at Elijah like he was some kind of celebrity. I mean, they knew that Elijah would come before Christ. So they were looking for Elijah. They knew he was an important person. But James is interested in the fact that Elijah was, did you notice what he said there? A man with a nature like ours. A man with a nature like ours. Notice three things about Elijah's example. The first thing we need to notice is that Elijah prayed fallibly. He was a man. He was fallible. He was not infallible. Like I just said, he was a man. He had a nature like us. Friends, this section acts as a proof that the standard of praying in faith is extended to all Christians, not simply those who have enough faith. What other reasons would James add that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours? Just because we are fallible and sinful doesn't mean that we can't fully trust God, that God can do what he says he is capable of doing. 
Beloved, how many times has your own fallibility and sinfulness kept you from praying to the Lord? You think that you're not good enough. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is the father of the fatherless. He is the lover of the unlovable. We just heard Blake preach a couple sermons on Christ's death, his burial and resurrection. And the curtain was torn in two. Friends, that is God's declaration to unlovely sinners. To come to him. Don't allow your fallibility, your own sinfulness, to keep you from praying to your heavenly father. Elijah was fallible. Just go read the story of Elijah and find how fallible he actually was. It's very enlightening. The second thing we see about Elijah is that he prayed fervently. This word in verse 17 isn't actually there in the Greek. If you actually read in the Greek, it actually reads, he prayed with prayer. It's kind of interesting. It's redundant. But it meant, it's meant to emphasize the intense nature of prayer. The intensity of his prayer. In 1 Kings, it actually says later that when he prayed for rain, he bent down and put his head between his knees. Now, the posture, obviously, is, doesn't prove whether or not someone is actually fervent in their prayer. But there was an apparent intensity in how Elijah prayed. How many of us could honestly admit that we have lacked fervency in our prayer? We've lacked the, the praying with prayer of James. That there's been a lost zeal to our prayers that we've desired but we haven't had. You ask God for something, asking for it with an open hand, ready to receive whatever the, the Lord chooses to give you, trusting that God can give it. Praying in faith without doubting should drain us. Should look like the woman following Jesus in the crowd, chasing after Jesus' robe, saying, if I just touch it, I'll be healed. Like Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. The angel he wrestled with says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Friends, prayers of faith have grit. Prayers of faith have stickability. They have steadfastness. They have perseverance. Prayers of faith have tenacity, which is the third thing we, say, we see in Elijah, is that Elijah prayed frequently. He prayed fallibly, he prayed fervently, and he prayed frequently. If you look back at 1 Kings 18, it says that he sent his servant to check if there was rain after he prayed seven times. Can you imagine that? Praying and going and not seeing rain, then coming back and then doing it again and then coming back and saying no and then doing it again. He did it seven times. It reminds of us of Luke 11, chapter 5, verse 8, or 5 through 8. This is an example of where a friend would go to his friend for what he needed. And after knocking on that door, 
And his friend, it's super late at night, his friend gets up and he says, hey, I'm in bed, go home. But he wouldn't stop knocking until the friend gave him what he needed. We can assume that this wasn't in order to pester his friend, but he needed what his friend had and he desired it, asking for it repeatedly. We even see this example in Christ. Friends, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 46. In this text, he says, it says that he went away to pray three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He came back seeing the disciples were sleeping, and he goes away to pray. Then he does it again and again. Friends, can't we assume that if we're trying to answer what the prayer of faith is, that we ought to look to the man of faith as an example? Jesus himself, the man of righteousness. But what we see in Christ is not really the, the repetition of his prayer, but the readiness to submit his will to the Father's will. Even when he taught his disciples to pray, he taught them saying, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see in Christ the righteous man that he wanted the Father's will to be done. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the faithful one, prayed in, Geth prayed in faith in Gethsemane. Was his prayer answered? Well, in one sense, yes, it was. But in another, no. The scripture says he asked in Mark 14, 36, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What we see in Jesus is that he knew ultimately that God's will would be done, and he wanted that more than, the cup, than that the cup should be removed. Brothers and sisters, sisters, Jesus intercedes for you. Jesus actually prays for you. The Father desires his children to come to him in prayer. Friends, it is such a comfort to us to know that we have a Savior who knows our suffering because he suffered too. Who knows our weakness because he felt that weakness. But who also rose to ensure us that he will come again. And it will, to bring his, it will be to bring his church to himself. Friends, we have a heavenly father who loves us and a perfect advocate who prays for us. Praise God for that, that we have that in Christ. So if Jesus, the righteous man, prayed in this way and taught his followers to pray in this way, then what should that teach us? about the prayer of faith in verse 15. It should, it should teach us that there is no mystical power in the prayer of faith. And that the main concern of James is not the prayer of faith as much as it should be done in the name of the Lord. Notice how verse 15 says, in the name of the Lord, and the Lord will raise him up in the following statement. Remember, too, that James is already operating on an assumption. We have to remember that. James, this is the very end of the book. James has already told his 
his readers many things. He's operating on the assumption that was made back in chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. He says, come now, you say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. We will live and do this and that. Guys, the assumption that James is operating with is that we and his readers will already know that knowing that nothing will come to pass unless the Lord wills it. That's just basic to what he's already talked about. He's not contradicting himself. So when we pray in the name of the Lord in faith, The Lord will always heal those that he has desired to be healed that is in accordance with his mysterious will. The prayer of faith offered in the name of the Lord and that is within God's will to accomplish will come to pass. Period. Which is why verse 15 says, says this with such assurance. The passage doesn't say that the prayer of faith will raise him up. It says that the Lord will raise him up. We pray to the Lord in accord with his revealed will. But friends, beyond that, it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. And we must trust that he will do what is good. So back in chapter 5, verse 16, James summarizes what we are supposed to do in light of this. We have the therefore. Therefore, in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, (coughs) excuse me, as it is working. Friends, this passage explains clearly what it looks like to be a Christian. We have such an amazing assurance here, and this assurance is that he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy in Christ. And friends, that is an amazing truth, that we those sinners should find mercy in a just and holy God. What grace and mercy is in Christ that God should offer mercy and grace and forgiveness and be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Most Christians miss out on the joyful exercise of confessing sin. You know, how wonderful it is to have another Christian affirm, Jesus died for that sin. You don't need to carry that guilt and shame any longer. He died for that. Believers shouldn't try or only confess their sins to those that they've wronged. But they should also confess their secret sins of pride, of lust, resentment, greed, 
covetousness, even jealousy. Not only this, but James couples this practice with praying for one another, confessing sin and praying for one another. As Elijah made the rain the object of his prayer, so we should make our brothers and sisters and their holiness the object of ours. Confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another, friends, it can add power to our prayer life and in our desire and ability to fight temptation. It can multiply our joy in the Lord and in other believers. It can give greater glory to God for overcoming sin. It can make our ministry to unbelievers more fruitful because we're more bold. It can uphold unity in the church. It can help us learn to pray and disciple one another better. It can actually help us get to know other Christians better as well. And it will help us know and love Jesus better. You know, I don't come up with this, so, so don't, attribute to, don't attribute it to me. But you've heard it said, once saved, always saved. Friends, Christians should say, once saved, always repenting. CCBC, how are you doing in this? How are you doing in confessing and repenting of sin and praying for one another that they might fight sin in their life? Are you actually trying to reach out to one another to get to know one another deeply? Or do you find yourself content with the how you doing in the hallway? Are you trying to move past the superficial to actually find out how a person is doing? Friends, this isn't super Christian, it's simply Christian. Pride likes seclusion. Humility likes to be in the open. You might say, Jansen, I'm just a quiet person. And that might be true, but you're probably prideful too. The way pride manifests in an introvert like myself is to seclude ourselves. We all have to take a deep drink of humility. We might just be quiet, right? We might not just be quiet. We might also be prideful. <laughs> Friends, here's the answer. Yes, you're prideful. We're prideful. You might also say, but Jansen, I've been struggling for this sin for a long time. How could I just go up to tell someone without the shame? Friends, I understand and I pray that you do eventually come, overcome that sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. But friends, I also want to urge you, encourage you, be careful not to call something a struggle when you actually just might be surrendering to sin. Remember what 1 John 1, 1 6-9 says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice, walk in the light with him, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, Garrett Kell wrote a very helpful short article on how to walk in the light. He said there, confessing sin to one another rips off the mask of hypocrisy so we can breathe the air of honesty. It enlivens our heart to feel again, and it removes the veil so we can see Christ afresh. Confession humbles us, which by nature uproots the pride that keeps immorality alive and attractive to our souls. In this article, he lays out how to do this. He gives us four steps. He says, first, confess your sins to a small group. Guys, you don't have to confess your sins to a bunch of people. Confess your sins to a believer that you trust. Second is share temptations. Don't just share your sins. Share your temptations. Say, brother, I'm, I'm not just sinning in this way, but brother, I'm really tempted to do this. This is something we can all grow in. Third thing is confess your sins quickly. Friends, honestly, the reality is, is if we sit on our sin, more than likely we won't confess it. Confess it quickly. Remove it. And move on. And number four, confess sins honestly. Friends, don't, don't lie. Tell the truth about your sin. Tell it honestly and firmly. And friends, if you want this article, I can, I can give that to you. Um, but it's a very helpful way to think through what it looks like to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another and to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Friends, I'm actually very encouraged to see so many people actually doing this in our church right now. Uh, just think, yesterday morning we had a group of men here praying together. How encouraging this, I mean, how encouraging it is, ladies meeting together for prayer, to read books together. I hear of members getting lunches together to get to know one another better. Friends, that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's, it's pushing yourself into other people's lives. It's trying to get to know each other better. I even hear of members who seek to help those who are in difficulty. Like the member care team. Church, if you get a chance to uh, thank Sheila and Matt for any, or any of the members who are the, uh, a part of that team for the work of the care of the physical needs of our congregation, please thank them. They're doing the church a great service in caring for the physical needs of our church and heading that up. Members meeting together on Saturday just because that's the only time they have free. It's so encouraging to see you use your own free time to get to know each other. It's extremely encouraging. Members inviting other members into their homes to enjoy a meal together. Hospitable. That's just being a Christian. That's good. It's what it means to, to love one another. Friends, singing together can also breathe vitality into the soul of a church. It's encouraging to hear us sing together. Singing praises to the Lord, making known our melody from our hearts to Him. Friends, it not only glorifies God, but it builds one another up. Singing together encourages one another. 
Friends, really what, what we're trying to do is be obedient to Jesus by doing what, what that church covenant says in that hallway, right? When we walk in here, every time you walk in here, you pass it. A very clear summary of the one another commands in Scripture. If you're a member and you want to get to know other members of the church, guys, get a membership directory. Get a membership directory and look through this thing. Get people's faces, get people's names, learn their names, and get to know each other. Shoot them a text, call them up, say, hey, let's have lunch together. Friends, that's just a great way to get conversations started so that you can build relationships with each other. It's a good thing to get to know one another and share life being Christians together. Well, friends, verse 15 ends with the statement, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Followed by the statement in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And what we have to see, friends, and this is, a, this is sobering for us, we have to realize this. We have to see to some extent that James is connecting in some way or another sin and sickness. And he is also not saying that when, when someone is sick, they're in sin. He's not saying that when someone is in sin, that they will be sick. He's not saying that. So I want to be very clear. He's connecting it somehow, but we don't know how. That's proven to us by the conditional statement, if, at the beginning of that statement there in verse 15. So broadly speaking, James is saying that not in all cases, and definitely not in cases that we can predict, sin and sickness can be related. James does not clarify what the sickness is. He doesn't tell us what the sin is. So what, we sh what should we do in light of this? Well, first, we shouldn't fantasize about what the sickness he is referring to is. We shouldn't fantasize about it. But rather, we are to use occasions when we are sick for healthy spiritual reflection. Healthy spiritual reflection. Friends, this text doesn't say it's a terminal illness. It doesn't say it's a chronic sickness. It doesn't say it's something like the flu. It doesn't say it's depression. It doesn't say anything about what the sickness is, but it does say that the person has to call for the elders of the church. And when the passage says that the Lord will raise him up, it literally means that the Lord will get him out of bed. Which among many reasons is why we can't read this passage figuratively. The text won't allow it. So verse 15 isn't talking about a spiritual salvation or the resurrection when Christ comes again, though both of them are theologically, biblically true. Both are very true. But it's actually talking about being healed from a sickness. Friends, 
Friends, we live in a culture that is so up and go that we often don't have time for sickness. And so when we get sick, we go to the pharmacy, we get a pill, we pop it in, and we move on. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do that. I think that there is a, a huge help that pharmaceuticals have been to our life. I, mean, I think it's a huge thing that the Lord has allowed in his grace for us to use. And I'm not talking about those who have to continually use it for an ongoing illness. But there is a difference between physical healing and reprieve. God might allow us reprieve through pharmaceuticals. But friends, it might only deal with the symptoms of the problem. Friends, pharmaceuticals not only deal with the symptoms of our sickness, but we can also use them to cover up a deeper spiritual sickness that we don't want others to notice and we often don't want to notice ourselves. Beloved, I believe that we need to, to heed a warning here, just, just from understanding what the, what the connection is. And I think that this text warrants it. We need to, to accept this with some sober judgment. When we've experienced some kind of sickness in our life, whether it's a quick, quick sickness or it's drawn out, God, in his providence, has given us an occasion for spiritual examination. God has given us an occasion for spiritual examination. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test, <coughs> Test yourselves. When God providentially brings sickness into our lives, it is a time for healthy self-examination. Now, friends, that is just based on the connection that this text makes apparent. In some cases, this does happen. The second point of this text that I want to push into a little bit is verse 19 and 20, and the second point is pursuing in love. Pursuing in love. Verse 19 and 20 read this way, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is about a person who was perceived to be in the church. That's why James uses the phrase, among you again, in verse 19. They wander away from the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. And if someone in the church goes after them and brings them back to the truth from his wandering, the phrase brings back is a Greek word that means to turn. That's what repentance is. It's turning. It's turning from sin, turning to Christ. The text says that they will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now to say that this Christian will save their soul from death doesn't mean that the Christian himself 
has the power to save this person. It's not what the text is saying, but that God is using this Christian to save them eternally, to keep them in the way, to set up the rails for their life and say, you've transgressed, come back. Friends, God does that. God uses the church as his hands and his feet, Christ's hands and his feet, to pursue us. So I just want to tell you, first off, if you have a Christian pursuing you because they perceive that you might be wandering from the truth, that is God's hand pursuing you. Don't shake it off and just think that they're judging you. No, Christ is pursuing you through them. This is how James ends the book. This is it. There's no greet this person, send the parchments, or anything like that. It's, it just ends here. But I'd like to add that it's very James-like. He just kind of wraps it up, just kind of done, just moves on. He's, he, he does the same thing in all, basically all the other sections that he's dealt with. But the question that we need to ask is, what connection does verse 19 to 20 have with the rest of the passage? Friends, I think verse 19 and 20 is the key, exegetical key, to understanding what is happening with the sickness in verse 14 to 16. I think that verse 19 to 20 is the key to understanding what's happening with the sickness in verse 14 to 16. I believe the multitude of sins being committed by this individual who is wandering from the truth is happening within the context of a local church. Think with me for a, for a moment about all the sins previously mentioned throughout the duration of this book. We've, we've dealt with a lot of them, friends. This book is heavy. A lot of sins. A lot of do this, don't do this. And it's fair to argue that almost all of them are happening and can happen within the church. Why else would the elders... Think back to verse, to, to verse 14 and 15. Why else would the elders need to go to this person in order to anoint, anoint them with oil and be involved in the first place with this sickness. Also, think about the, the sickness in verse 14, how it could be naturally coupled with the suffering of verse 13. Sickness is a kind of suffering. And that's actually what the word means. It means to be, to suffer. Or the, the word suffering actually means to be afflicted in some sense or another. But James is distinguishing between the two. He's distinguishing between the suffering in verse 13 and the sickness of verse 14. Which would make sense that if this heinous sin was against Christ's body, Christ's bride, that God would have a particular disdain for sins that are specifically and intentionally meant to pollute Christ's body. Friends, God hates sin. Let's get that out of the way. God hates it. That's why we confess it. That's why we grow in holiness. God hates it. But he has a certain contempt against sins that intentionally dismantle and break the unity of Christ's church. When the church is slandered, slurred, derided, and scoffed because 
of the ungodly and demonic example of people who call themselves Christians. They call themselves a Christian. It does not represent God's holy name. God hates all sin, but if you deliberately spread division in the church, you're a friend of the world. And James 4.4 says that if you make yourself a friend of the world, you by default make yourself an enemy of God. Be careful. Friends, be careful how you speak about Christ's bride. Whether we're flawed or not, beloved, we're Christ's bride. And Christ purchased us with his blood on the tree. Sinning by wandering away from the truth is James 4.17 in full fruition. If you remember, or you can go back and listen to the sermon in James 4.13-17, but verse 17 is emphasizing the sin of presumption, presuming upon God's grace saying, God will forgive me later, so I'm going to persist in my sin now. Friends, if you are wandering from the truth right now, if you sense yourself wandering from the truth of God's word, of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've been presuming upon God's grace for a long time. That's why chapter 5, 16 is both the spiritual preservative and preventative of God's people. Confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another both preserves our spiritual wrought unity and prevents us from wandering away from the truth. It both keeps us unified and prevents us from becoming divided. Beloved, when verse 16 stops, verse 19 to 20, might be around the corner. When verse 20 ends, he says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is quoting Proverbs 10, verse 12. And there's some debate on this, but I believe Proverbs uh, Proverbs 10, verse 12 is what he's quoting. That says, hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. In fact, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, uses this same language in reference to how love covers a multitude of sins. Love pursues. Think about the sins mentioned just in this book alone. That there are people who call themselves Christians who have shown favoritism in the church for their own personal gain. Those who say they have faith but don't have works. Those who unleash the flame of their tongues to set ablaze the church. Those who use their tongues to slander, gossip, and spread poison, vileness to consume Christ's bride. Those who are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. They spread disorder and vile practice throughout the church. People who cause fights quarrels, those who who oppress Christians in the church. Beloved, we are called to pursue them, 
Because we know that love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Pursue them because you were once one of them. And Christ pursued you. Friends, Jesus lived a life of faith-filled praise. He endured suffering faithfully. And he pursues sinners, lost sheep who have no shepherd. And he will leave the 99 and go after the one. Like the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when his son returned, the father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. This is the same pursuing love of God that he's shown us through Christ on the cross. Living, dying, and rising. And how he offers grace to you freely. There's no cost because Jesus paid it all. Come to him. Friend, look to him and believe Friend, if, you are, if you're here and you, you know you're drifting, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, you know you're not a Christian, you just came here to entertain your friend who's been asking you for, for, for what feels years. If you're wandering from the truth, or if you don't know the truth, turn from your sin and gaze upon Christ. Look to him and be saved. His arms are open for you. There is no shame. There is no guilt. Only grace in Christ. Friends, who has the Lord put in your life that has pursued you when you were straying from Christ? Whoever that might be, thank God for them. Maybe give them a call this, this week, text them, and just thank them for obeying Jesus. And being a, a tangible expression of Christ's relentless love for you. I have a friend back in Texas that did that with me. And friends, I'm so thankful for him. You know, eternal security is the doctrine or the truth that Christian's salvation, that a Christian's salvation is secure for all eternity. What the whole of the New Testament, the whole Bible teaches is that eternal security is always a certainty. You can always be certain about it. When you trust in Christ as Savior and Lord to cover over your sins and make you right before God, you are adopted into his family and you are his child forever. Forever. And there is no changing that. That is a certainty to which Scripture consistently bears witness. 
But the question is, how does God keep us in his family? That is, how does God guard us from ever wandering away from him? How does God preserve our salvation to the end? The answer James gives to the church is, through you. Through you. Eternal security is accomplished through community. How does God preserve his people? The answer is, in part, through his people. The church is one of the God-ordained means God uses to keep us faithful as Christians. God is sovereign, and he does the persevering, don't, preserving, don't get me wrong. But he does it through the church, looking out for you, caring for you, and loving one another to keep each other from sinning. CCBC, pursue one another. Pursue one another in love. God intends to use you. God intends to use you to keep your brothers and sisters in the faith. And the way that you keep yourself in the faith, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Friends, that's why we sing together. That's why we confess our sins together. That's why we pray together. That's why we pursue one another together. That we might be used by Jesus to keep one another near the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. You are such a glorious, kind, compassionate, merciful, glorious, true God. And Lord, everything you do is always within your will. Lord, keep us from thinking that our faith to do anything in this life is finally dependent upon ourselves. Lord, relieve our hearts of that guilt. Help us know that Faith is a gift, and that you give it. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us to learn what it means to walk in the light, as you are in the light. Lord, help us when we see other brothers or sisters walking away from the light or walking into darkness. Lord, help us know what it means to pray for them, and to pursue them. Lord, it is your intended means to keep us faithful to the end. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the church. We pray that you have been glorified through this, through this text. We pray, Lord, that you too would keep us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.